Engage for Success Radio, raising the profile of employee engagement and shining a light on good practice for people who believe there's a better way to work. Well, hello and welcome to Engage for Success Radio and show number 395 in our weekly series. Engage for Success is a not-for-profit movement and we are the UK's leading voice on the topic of employee engagement. We're raising awareness and running events through our area networks around the country, as well as our topic and sector-specific thought and action groups, developing research, publishing case studies, and shining a light on great practice. Do visit us at engageforsuccess.org to learn more, uh, where you can also sign up for our weekly newsletter. I'm Jo Moffat. I'm one of the regular hosts of our weekly radio show, and I'm also managing director and founder of Woodread. And at Woodread, we work with our clients to help them use their brands and the approach and the technique of the marketing and advertising world to engage their employees and create high-performing workplaces uh, that people want to be, wherever, of course, those workplaces may be in the current climate. And today, uh, we have a special guest joining us, Alison Williams, um, and I'll be asking Alison to introduce herself a little bit more in a moment. Uh, But Alison is joining us to talk about fostering autonomy in the workplace, and that's the subject we're going to be exploring for the next half hour. Um, Alison is a fellow of the American Academy of Matrimonial Lawyers and practices exclusively in the field of family law, so adoptions, divorce, domestic violence, and child support matters. But interestingly, and really where, where her expertise is being brought to bear in the next half hour, is that she's also known as the law firm mentor. And Alison is joining us today to lead us through today's topic, which is fostering autonomy in the workplace. And I'm sure that um, much of what we're going to be talking about will be very relevant to our listeners who are themselves in professional services of all sorts, um, but also uh, in the broader in the broader workplace and in leadership and management roles um, across the board. So welcome to the show, Alison. It's great to have you with us. Um, and I wonder whether we could start perhaps just give us a little bit of an overview of your professional background because obviously there's the there's the the high-flying lawyer aspect to it uh, and the the practicing of family law but also this this law firm mentor uh, side to your to your work that you deliver so tell us a little bit about yourself and and what it is that you do if you would Yes, well, thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. And and we're talking about one of my favorite topics that actually very much combines my two professions, uh, my career as a lawyer, and then also my career as a business coach. And Mm -hmm. so in 2013, I I left my law firm, much like many other lawyers decided that I would start my own company. And I expected that I would rinse and repeat everything that I had done to be a successful lawyer just in my own company with my own level of control over that. And I found out very quickly that there's a lot more involved than just being a good lawyer. There were all of the pragmatics of hiring and firing and organizing and marketing and selling. And I Mm -hmm. intellectually understood that, but I didn't understand it at a visceral level. So trying to fit in everything that was necessary in my law career to be a successful lawyer with everything that was necessary in order to run an ethically sound, financially successful, organized, well-running business, I just was completely overwhelmed. And very soon in my journey as a law firm owner, uh, I had a a relatively uh, traumatic episode 
uh, in that I had hired probably my third of completely incompetent human beings and <laughs> realized that I was not going to do well with this hiring thing. So I said, you know what, I'll just do the work myself. I'll be my own secretary. And I started a process where I would come into the office at six in the morning. And at that time, I lived about 45 minutes away. So mm-hmm. I would drive to work, work from six in the morning to 830 in the morning as a secretary, become a lawyer <laughs> at 830 in the morning and work until 6 p.m. And then at 6 p.m., uh, start shoveling in whatever I could find uh, for consumption at dinner time. And 6.30-ish to 9 o'clock, I would return to being a secretary and end my day driving back home for an extended period of time, collapsing in bed, waking up the next day, rinse and repeat, and do it and over doing again. Doing it all over again. My goodness. And how long did yeah. you keep that going for, Alison? Well, that was that was a miserable about six or seven weeks. And uh, toward the end of it, the exhaustion had started to set in. So I literally was eating coffee uh, beat grounds in order to just keep myself awake. And I was I was physically and I was mentally and emotionally exhausted. But something yeah. came through. We actually had a breakthrough where uh, for whatever reason, it was three uh, three different court matters I had scheduled on a Friday and all of them were adjourned. And I considered that such a blessing. I was so happy I was going to have a full day in my office. I just, I couldn't, I couldn't express my, my gratitude to the universe enough. And so that <laughs> night, that Thursday night when I'm driving home, there's kind of like this tension built up in my body that I'm like so excited to get to the finish line of laying in bed and actually getting a full night's sleep. I, w- I promised myself I wasn't going to come in until like eight o'clock the next day. And I was only going to work until six. So I was going to have a reasonable work day. And as luck would have it, uh, all that tension built up in my body did not find itself in release. Ultimately, I'm driving and I'm driving faster and faster and faster. And by the time I got to 90 miles an hour on the highway, I woke up about one quarter centimeter away from a guardrail. And that was my aha moment that working harder was not working anymore. So I, I started to, you know, kind of caught my bearings, you know, got out of the car, said a few inappropriate things out to, out to the heavens. And then the next day I said, you know what, this is, this is nuts. I've got to do something. So I started looking for solutions, found myself into the hands of a business coaching service, and then ultimately transitioned to work with a, a series of different business coaches over a relatively short period of time, took my law firm from zero into a multi-million dollar law firm, and realized that not only had I learned all that was necessary in order to evolve thinking and action and integrate those into sound business practice. But I also had an intuitive knowledge from things that I had experienced in my career. And I had already learned how to become really good at marketing and selling because I had about a a half million dollar book of business that was going to ultimately follow me from my law firm into my own company when I started. And so I had a lot to offer to lawyers and, Long after I left uh, a particular business coaching company as a client, lawyers would reach out to me and say, oh, my God, every time you would post something, it would be so helpful. Can you help me with this? And I started just naturally falling into coaching and advising lawyers and and ultimately decided in January of 2018, I would launch Law Firm Mentor, which is my second company that I've taken from zero into a multi-million dollar company in three years. Really impressive. 
Yeah, thank you. And, you know, and it's, it's very much dedicated to helping lawyers to essentially do what I did, not necessarily, not necessarily copy and paste my law, my law firm, because not yeah. everybody wants the size of firm that I have, and not everybody's in the same practice area. But to be able to take the chaos that is naturally inherent in having a highly, um, a highly successful law practice, and put that into a framework where you can actually create a highly systematized machine that runs without you, that produces profit and creates a better work environment for you, your employees, your clients, and everyone benefits from learning how to do business better in the area of law. But we don't spend enough time talking about that before we get to the crisis point that I had. Right, yes. Yes, and and this is something we touched on before we came on air, wasn't it? It, it? You know, people go to law school, they learn they learn the lawyering, um, but nowhere on that on that prospect, um, on that syllabus is I, I'm imagining nowhere on that syllabus are, are kind of commercial classes, marketing classes, how to actually be a a business practitioner. That's 100% correct. And, and you know, in, in many ways, what we do learn is actually quite antithetical to being successful in business. So I'll give you an example. You know, in, in law, one of the things, one of the first things that you learn in, in the law is to value the role of stare decisis. In other words, that whatever has come before is the uh, the goal for evaluating everything that comes in the future so that there's continuity of the law so that people have a level of predictability as to how to govern themselves and what rights and responsibilities they have in a free society. So hmm. when you think about that, when you come into a business environment, business is ever evolving, everything about business, right? The way that you market today is not how you're going to market three months from now, six months from now, a year from now. And then when you add in the advent of technology, the way in which we deliver the service, the way in which we process information, the way in which we oversee our team and cultivate our workplace culture, all of that changes with the level of change in our society. And as our society has become more knowledgeable, more experienced, more technologically focused, more online, our, our level of change, our rate of change has, has grown exponentially. And so if you have that stare decisis mindset when you are working in a business, you are inherently going to be unsuccessful in business because what you're doing today is never going to be sufficient for what you need to be doing three months from now, six months from now, a year from now. Right. Yeah, no, absolutely. That makes absolute sense. So, so let's turn to today's topic, which is around fostering autonomy in the workplace, which is all around uh, creating an engaged workforce and, and, and so on. Um, how did you... How did you get into, you know, how did that topic become something, the whole sort of employee engagement, organizational culture, the need for autonomy? How did you get into that? Was that, yeah. was that from a series of trials and errors and your, you know, your dreadful hiring experiences? <laughs> well, part of it was from hiring experiences, um, but part of it also was that I think that one of the things that I personally had to grapple with when I started in law was that I was always a very uh, introverted person, and I was also a person who thrived in being able to go into my office, close the door, put my head down, and really bang out the work, right? So that was where I found my happy. And what I, what I always assumed, wrongfully as it was, uh, was that other people wanted that too, that other people wanted the ability to be left alone so they could go into their office, do their work, make their money, and go home. 
And to some degree, there are people that want that. But there is also a great value that I also intuitively understood about the community that I was creating. And the problem was that I, as a leader, am the first cause of the community that I create. And so if I did not have a level of intentionality around how to not just give people work to do, but how to ensure that as they were working, they were working seamlessly together and that they had a certain level of freedom in being able to contribute to their work, then in essence, what I was doing by virtue of giving people things to do and paying them for it was I was taking away all of the creative process that human beings need in order to feel fulfilled in the work that they're doing. And that fulfillment doesn't just, it's not just a necessity for your workplace. It's a necessity for your life, whether it's the creativity that you put into creating meals or the creativity that you put into um, you know, engaging with a friend and exchanging information. Like people are not um, passive doers, even if they work in factory type jobs. And so mm-hmm. I knew that I had to allow people to be their best selves, but I struggled with the idea of how to do that without a free for all of everyone come in, do whatever and go home. Right. So yeah. there was somewhere yeah. between 100% autonomy and 100% rigid structure and, and expectations And finding that happy space was something that ultimately transformed my culture into one where everyone comes to work, has a lot of freedom, but also has the work ethic to tenacity and the dedication to the job because of that freedom that allows us to be an exceptional uh, leader in the marketplace. Okay, so because you you touched earlier on the um, when you were starting the, telling us the story about the law firm mentor um, work that you do, this um, application of systemized systemizing and processes and things, and of course that is quite a, that's quite a challenge, isn't it, to create freedom, I mean freedom slash autonomy on the one hand with systemizing workplaces and processes and replicable processes and all of that on the other. So um, that's the secret source, trying to get the balance, I guess. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things that I think kind of hits the, the nail on the head here that a lot of people can probably resonate with is the idea that the systems that you're creating are for the activity that is mundane and replicated every single day. But there is in a law firm in particular, an inherent need for you to have creative space to do your work, but you need to have the energy in order to do that. So one of the things that I always prioritize that I talk to my team about and that I talk to my clients about relentlessly is the idea that when you are thinking day by day about every little thing that has to get done, you don't realize how much you are taking away from your energetic process, your creative process, that's now not available to your clients when they need a solution, right? Mm-hmm. So if you don't want to be the starry, decisive lawyer, if you don't want to be someone who copy and paste solutions, but who actually looks for ways to change, evolve, and work within the law in order to get a better result for a client, you need the intellectual and the emotional bandwidth in order to do that, which you don't have if you're spending your days thinking about where do I put this document and how do, how do I process the mail and who's going to be the next person to answer the phones and all of the little clatter that's in the background that we don't really think about, right? 
we, 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 it's just kind of running in a, in a rote in our businesses. But when you get your business dialed in, then what happens is you can trust people more because the system operates as kind of like an echo chamber. And the person standing in the interim gets to be as loud and colorful as they want with their voice as they are creating all of the things that are really the most highly valued activity in your business, what you're actually selling, which is the legal service. Hmm. Mm, no, that, that makes sense. So, so can you can you share with us um, uh, one a few some of some of the strategies that you've kind of come to adopt that will help us to help our listeners actually manage to get that balance? Sure. So there's lots of things that you can do to help get to that place of of optimal autonomy for employees. So the mm. first thing I always recommend is involving them in the goal setting and the planning process. So mm-hmm. you, want, you want your employees to not just be told, here's what we're going to be doing, and tomorrow you're going to be doing X instead of Y. You want to solicit their feedback. You want to get information from them about how their job is working so that when you are contemplating making a change, they get to have a voice in what that change is going to look like, right? Mm-hmm. So I like to think about it like uh, I'm in the U.S., And I often use the New York, California, the East Coast, West Coast dichotomy. So if you're in New York and you desire to go to California, you know that you have a set destination. That destination is fixed. But what is not fixed is how you get there, right? Are you going to take one one plane? Are you going to take several planes? Are you going to have like a layover in different places as you're headed over to the West Coast? Are you going to start off in a, in a car and then ultimately transition to a train and then ultimately transition to a plane, right? Those yeah. things are not necessarily required for you to decide. And the more you bring your team in to decide those types of activities, the better that they will, one, recognize their value. So they're more likely to use their autonomy responsibly because they will feel a level of loyalty to you because you are entrusting them with something as critical and important as your baby, but mm. they will also give you ideas that you don't have. And here's the thing that most lawyers don't want to hear, right? You are not the smartest person in the room, even when you are <laughs> the smartest person in the room, right? There is always yeah. someone who is doing a job that you have entrusted them to do that has been doing that job longer than you, right? You're not mm. a secretary. You're not a paralegal. Mm. You're not a file clerk. You're not a marketing assistant. You're not an intake director. When you hire people, you have to let them be in their zone of genius to use that to benefit your business. You have to let go of control. Yes. So That's that, quite culturally quite a difficult thing for certain professions to do, isn't it? They, they kind of do, do tend to think that they actually are the experts in everything because that's kind of what, that's kind of what they end up being very often. Yeah. And, you know, we have, you know, it's not just lawyers, but there are a lot of professions where, especially if you are regulated by a licensing board, there are a lot of rules and requirements that other people don't have as innately as you do because they didn't go to school to learn how to, how to ethically manage certain communications, right? So Mm -hmm. there are things that, yes, you have to oversee in order to ensure that you're meeting the standards of your profession, with an idea of my goal is to let this person be the arbiter of what is going to happen with this particular type of activity, or at least have a significant say in it, you're going to actually get a better result. Hmm. So another strategy I would highly recommend, and this is something that I tell people that is the, the hardest thing for lawyers to get in particular, is that you have to delegate authority, not just the work. So right. when, when you give someone a task, when you say, 
in order for you to be successful as my paralegal, I need you to file these documents. I need you to organize this information. I need you to review these, uh, the discovery that's come in, right? You're giving them a task to do, but you're not giving them the authority to use their intellect to actually facilitate the completion of that task. And in particular, when they're doing work that touches upon other people's roles, one of the challenges that you're often not going to see until you actually run into it is that when people are not necessarily supervising each other, but they each have an area of dominion, you have a legal secretary and a paralegal, or you have an associate attorney and a paralegal, or maybe even you have a junior partner and an associate, you have different roles that each person is occupying, but a person with a lower status in your company could have responsibility to get certain activity done. And if you don't give the authority to them that says, this is where you're allowed to push back. This is where you're allowed to ask questions. This is where you're allowed to disagree. This is where you're allowed to ensure that you get X, Y, and Z done, even if it means that somebody's going to be unhappy because they can't get something else done that I have said is not the highest priority then you're not giving them the ability to really do their job. You're creating an inherent frustration in their day-to-day -day activities. Yes, 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 that makes sense, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So some, something else that, um, that I often tell my, my coaching clients that they should work toward is hmm. trusting the team before you have to. So this is actually where we have to build up the ability in the business owner and typically also people, uh, lawyers that are working within the company. You have to build up the muscle of delegating. And so <laughs> even when a, a person is inclined, they intellectually understand they can get more work done if two-thirds of the work on their desk is ultimately shared with someone else and then that space that's on their desk can be filled with going out to get more work or mm -hmm. doing a more thorough job on the work that you have. Intellectually, most people understand that. But what becomes a challenge is that you give something over to a person. Oftentimes, we do that through abdicating, not delegating. You yeah. hand over a big project. You say, okay, great. Here it is on Monday. I want this back on Thursday. And you think, okay, I would normally need two days. I'm giving this person three days. Look at me. And you don't get it back on Thursday. Or when you ask for it, they, they haven't even started the project yet. And you say, oh, great. If I had just kept this, I could have done it myself. Now I have to snatch it back. Now I'm annoyed and frustrated. Next time I have a well-worn path of failure that reminds me that I can't trust my employee, so I'm not going to. And oftentimes that becomes the lay of the land. So you hire someone and you keep them underutilized or you keep them doing lower level tasks or you keep them doing tasks that are not compensable. So you're not making the money off of them that their role should be engineered to create in the first place. And that oftentimes will often suppress someone to the point where they either leave the company looking for greater opportunities or where you feel that ultimately they're overcompensated because you're paying them to do a job you're not letting them do. Mm, so, so you end up being resentful and, 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 and then, you, then, when you, then it becomes very easy to look at that and say, well, actually, they're not earning the salary that I'm paying them. Absolutely. Mm. So I always tell people you have to build up trust, and that is your responsibility, not their responsibility. So in other mm -hmm. words, it is not your employee's responsibility to teach you how to trust them. It is your responsibility to work with them in a way that fosters and develops trust because 
if you work with them in this way and your trust does not grow in them, that typically means that they don't have the aptitude to be able to do the job. So the trusting process really is about delegating in pieces, right? So we don't just take a huge project and dump it on someone's desk and say, here, there you go. You have to learn the step-by-step process. And I actually, I teach this in various different ways. Sometimes we do it in uh, a program that I have called Systematize Your Law Business. Sometimes we do it in one-to-one trainings with our clients. But ultimately, it is looking at the outcome that you want from the project. And then it is phasing that outcome in ways so that kind of reverse engineering, you're giving it to people in a way that you are starting to create opportunities to trust them along the way. So if this is a 10-hour project, I'm not giving it to you and saying, over the next five days, find 10 hours to do this project. I'm thinking about it strategically. How much of this needs to be given to you at once? If I give it all to you at once, how much of it needs to be broken down into pieces? When we break it down into pieces, how often should I be checking in with you to make sure that you understand? When Mm -hmm. I delegate it to you, am I asking you to parrot back to me what instruction I've given to make sure that I was clear, to make sure that you understand, to afford you the opportunity to ask questions, and to make sure that you understand what is an area where you can flex and be creative and what are the things that absolutely have to be done pursuant to a system. And when you get into the habit of giving people work in this way, first of all, they don't feel that they're abandoned. They don't feel like they just had the weight of the world put on them. They feel <laughs> that, they're, they, that they actually can do the work. Then you are checking in with them in a way that says, I trust you, but I'm also here as a resource as you're working through this. So that after, you, after you've started, if you hit a hiccup, if you, know, you think it should be done a certain way and you haven't yet uh, approached me with that, maybe you're just too busy, maybe I'm too busy, maybe I'm not approachable, whatever it is, you have that moment to stop and pause and say, hey, I think this would go faster if I did X. And then you have an opportunity to praise, which is the next thing that I highly recommend that lawyers do as they are building up that environment full of autonomy, which is you have to praise people when they do things right. We as lawyers are always looking for what's going wrong, right? What makes you a good lawyer is finding things that are going wrong so that you can solve problems or anticipating things that could go wrong so that you can prevent problems, right? We're either fixing something that's broken or we're trying to keep it from breaking in the first place. So a lot of our thought process is also brought into the workplace with that same mindset, right? What's going wrong? What do I need to fix? What do I need to be looking for? What is the possibility of going wrong here? But when you see someone doing something right, and for a lot of lawyers, this is not instinctual, so I say, put it on a calendar, right? You need mm-hmm. to actually go take time to intentionally look for your employees to do things right, because they're doing right things all the time, right? Or else you wouldn't, have, you wouldn't be employing them, right? If they were doing nothing but all wrong things all day, you would have terminated them it, by now. It wouldn't, it, yeah, it wouldn't be going on that long, would it? No. Right. So as they're doing things right, stop and praise them. And if you have multiple employees, I highly recommend that you praise in public, right? So we mm-hmm. criticize in private, we praise in public. Yeah. So yeah. stop by someone's desk and say, oh, God, you know, client so-and-so stopped by the other day and they were so frazzled by the time that they met with me, but they said, you were so helpful. I really mm-hmm. want to thank you for that. Or it can be the small pieces of the puzzle that you're not seeing until someone brings it to your attention. So maybe you delegate a big project and maybe halfway through the project, you hear from a member of your team, 
oh, the paralegal um, saw that we didn't have such and such, and so they went ahead and ordered it. Or they called the client to make sure that these documents would be here on time. And then Mm -hmm. you can spontaneously, without any prompting, just go over and tell them, oh, my God, I can't believe that you were so forward thinking as to come up with this solution to this problem that I didn't even know existed. And by doing that, what what you do is not only engender goodwill so that people not only use their autonomy to solve problems for you, but you also create in them a mindset that says the things that get praised are my independence, my freedom, my ability to Mm -hmm. think on my own, my ability not to have to come interrupt my boss's day in order to figure things out. And they start looking for ways to do that. It's almost like the carrot and the stick, right? Which is going to be more effective? You need positive reinforcement baked into the way that you do things in order for people to be incentivized without your having to spend more money or take more time. And that's really what's going to get you to that success point. But you have to be intentional about it. So Mm -hmm. I tell lawyers Mm -hmm. this all the time. Make sure Mm -hmm. that you put on your calendar, if you're not somebody who instinctually praises, or even if you think that you are, make sure that you're actually putting reminders to yourself to praise your employees as you go through your workday. And then that autonomy that you create is going to feed on itself. Absolutely. That sounds, I mean, this is a, a little bit of a masterclass. We've got 60 seconds left, believe it or not, Alison. But you know, all those strategies you've described are a masterclass for any organization that is attempting to come to grips or get to grips with the sort of potential new hybrid workplaces that we might be, uh, you know, that we're, we're looking looking forward to in the future. You know, trust is absolutely going to be the defining need in that kind of cultural in 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 our cultures in the future isn't it and these uh, strategies you've described are you know they've all got trust at their heart um so it's it's been fascinating and and just on the point of praise um in the remaining few seconds we've got we're talking praise we're talking acknowledgement we're talking recognition we're not necessarily talking about that being hand in hand with monetary reward are we No, we're definitely not. In fact, most people will want autonomy over money when you actually get down to the heart of it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, We've run right out of time. That's been fabulous and really, really insightful. And as I say, um, broadly applicable, I think, to, to many of our listeners. So thank you, everybody, for listening. And thank you to today's special guest, Alison Williams from The Law Firm Mentor. Thank you very much. And it just remains for me to say goodbye. Goodbye. All right. Thank you. Engage for Success Radio, raising the profile of employee engagement and shining a light on good practice for people who believe there's a better way to work. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.